Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast. And if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. I've got a very exciting thing going on here. Uh, But first, if this is your very first time here, welcome. If you're a regular, welcome back. This week's episode is going to serve as an introduction to a limited series which will be coming out over the next couple of months. The big news here is that I've spent the last couple of weeks working on an unabridged audiobook of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Before the series launches next week, I wanted to take some time, nearly 4,000 words of it, to explain what I think it has to offer us in the modern world, and why I decided to make yet another audiobook of Moby Dick. Uh, (laughs) This introduction was originally just going to take place as part of the first episode of me reading Moby Dick, but it just kept growing and growing and growing uh, as I wrote about what I loved about the book, why I thought it should be something that we still read in the modern world, etc., etc., that it just sort of became its own essay. So I hope you enjoy this, even if you don't carry on with me to listen to the entire audiobook of me reading Moby Dick, I hope I can enrich your life a little bit by pointing out a few things you may not have known about this most famous of books about a dude who really, really hates a whale. But let's move on. Uh, Consider this an introduction to my edition. But before that, a small foreword. Before I begin, I must make a confession. Whenever I encounter an introduction to a classic book, often written with the best of intentions by some modern author who loves the work in question, I skip it. I am the kind of reader who prefers to jump headlong into the text, trusting the author to lead me. This has occasionally gotten me into uncomprehending thickets of confusion, such as the time I failed to realize that the Aeneid was essentially a piece of fanfiction written hundreds of years after its progenitor work, The Odyssey, or my shocking lack of appreciation for Roman geopolitics failing to keep me afloat while reading Pharsalia. However, I did go back and read those proffered introductions after completing the works in question and found them to be of some help. So I don't think the introductors were completely wasting their time, and I hope the same is true here. Also, before we go one step further, a kind of trigger warning is in order. Moby Dick was first published in 1851. In the intervening 171 years since that date, a great deal has changed about the world. To wit... Our ideas about geopolitics, race relations, natural science, and the appropriateness of shouting about how full of sperm a given creature is have all shifted radically. If you are one of those blessed pure souls who has never had the misfortune to encounter problematic art published prior to the year 2019, I understand if you believe this novel about to celebrate its Dodran Bicentennial is not for you. However, I would urge you to consider the value it may still possess, about which more later. Ere this forward to my introduction meanders any further, I shall endeavor to begin upon my labor in the exposition of Herman Melville's most wondrous tome of Sea and Cetacea. 
Introduction On Finding Value in the Past or Strangely Reads Moby Dick, An Introduction or On Wearing a Whale's Penis Like a Dress Part the First On Finding Value in the Past I love Moby Dick because it expresses something that lives in my own heart that is difficult to talk about. I will be frank, my entire adult life has been a prolonged and so far, thank heaven, winning battle against suicidal depression. Quote, Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is damp and drizzly November in my soul, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. From the very outset of the novel, Herman Melville introduces a character who suffers from a similar depression to my own. Ishmael has found, at least temporarily, relief in the wild sea, a place so antithetical to human life. For me, this understanding colors every single triumph, terror, encounter, and exclamation made by our narrator after his admission, on the very first page of the novel to be suffering from that darkest malady of the soul. Ishmael, as and one assumes Melville himself, understands suicidal ideation. That Ishmael finds and clings to new friends throughout the novel makes sense given that each day he continues forward is a gift, having avoided that dreadful pistol and ball. The fact that the novel also has a goodly number of fart jokes no doubt endears it to me as well. That tremendous source of personal positivity aside, I will not make any secret of the fact that this book contains a good deal of language that will strike the ear of the modern reader as, at best, antiquated. For instance, the novel contains nearly 50 uses of the word queer, with absolutely none of them intended to refer to anyone's sexuality, as this usage had not yet come into vogue, despite the fact that this book has many, as a modern reader would say, queer innuendos. Uh, <clears throat> that be as it may. The book also includes numerous references to people from a wide variety of origins, using word choices that would likely warrant, if not banishment from polite society, at least a shunning at a cocktail party. Melville does manage to avoid the vilest of racial epithets, though, in particular a certain word. This being an anagram of the word ginger, as helpfully pointed out by Australian musical comedian Tim Minchin. Thankfully, Melville's restraint has relieved me of the kind of convolutions that would be required of me by some of his contemporaries, such as Frederick Law Olmsted, Harriet Beecher Stowe, or Mark Twain. Grateful though I may be to not have to justify my uttering of a particular word, there remain several portions of Moby Dick which I am sorry to admit I feel somewhat uncomfortable reading aloud and posting on the internet. In particular, there is Melville's attempt at theatrical minstrelsy in Chapter 64. So should we consign the entire thing to the dustbin of history, despite its mental health advantages as mentioned earlier? I argue that we shouldn't. As I pointed out to a friend recently, Melville's average of problematic content is actually quite low. For instance, my edition of the book spans some 1300 pages with less than 50 of them containing material that I cringe to mention. I would add that the majority of those occupy the aforementioned chapter 64. I mean, honestly, if my percentage at the end of my life is as good as that, I'll be very happy. 
Perhaps I should just skip chapter 64 entirely. After all, what does a minstrelsy sketch have to do with the argued benefits of someone who understands my mental health struggles in a way that few else have? I would argue everything. Herman's book has proved a tremendous comfort to me in this storm-tossed sea we call life, and thus I wish to approach it warts and all. I think it is important to acknowledge and accept that even the most valuable and helpful people in our lives, be they authors, friends, or both, have their dark and problematical aspects, as do all human beings. Acknowledging then that I cannot speak to the experience of anyone but myself, I would argue that it is Melville's intense curiosity that saves this particular book from that proverbial dustbin of history. While it is true that Melville depicts human beings from all over the world, often doing so with colorful words like cannibal, I believe there is more going on than meets the eye. For instance, while the book often refers to the three non-white harpooners upon the ship as savages, it is not they who engage in the wildest bits of diabolic ritual. Rather, it is the white, ostensibly Christian Captain Ahab who performs rites involving fire and human blood. Indeed, this is the kind of contrast which Melville is forever drawing within the book, providing a kind of self-examination within Ishmael of the whole of Western-oriented society, forever questioning his own prejudices and viewpoint. I would also point out that in the above-mentioned bit of minstrelsy in chapter 64, it is a white character who makes it happen, the black man in question is portrayed as being put upon, shoved forward into the role of entertainment by a white character who has actually dragged him from his bed for no reason other than his own amusement. Once again, we see a question being raised. How much of our perceptions of people is influenced by what we force them to be? In order to amuse or comfort ourselves, do we, who may hold power over others, actually change those we interact with? I cannot answer these questions, I merely point them out to show that I think Melville had a bit more on his mind than, oh look, this old man talks funny. The book also engages in now antiquated bits of nonsense such as phrenology, but here too there may be more than meets the ear. Melville does not apply phrenology to any of the human characters, but instead to the skull and the forehead of the book's most central, indeed titular, creature, the sperm whale. Once again, what emerges is a kind of pastiche of the going scientific racism of his day, for how much more ridiculous is it to apply such reasoning to a fellow human being when it fits so poorly upon a whale? And what a whale it is! Like the best of science fiction, the closer the monster from beyond the human world gets, the less the divisions between the human characters seem to matter. Even the monomaniacal Ahab gets his quiet moments of human connection as the inevitable climax draws nigh. I think this book is an honest attempt to paint human beings from a variety of origins as complex creatures. We are all capable of terrible things, and of great things. I am not the right person to address many of the issues this book has, so I will leave it with this. I understand that parts of this book may seem distasteful, however, I believe that Melville's joyous curiosity at the wondrous variety of the world is the novel's saving grace. Ishmael, as a narrator, is forever interested in the smallest details of the lives of other people. 
even if they are from a culture so alien to his own as to seem to preclude any common ground. What emerges then is not a pontification on the nature of his own worldview's superiority, but rather a gentle entertaining of the thought that there may be more than one way of doing things. I, for one, believe that in this day and age we need as much common ground as we can manage, and to that end I think this book still has much to teach us. Not only about the mental health benefits which come from climbing into a small, cramped space with dozens of sweaty men and chasing after giant phallic animals in a hostile environment, but also in the ways it encourages us to examine our fellow human beings, giving space to their different ways of doing things, and perhaps learning something about our own hearts along the way. Part the Second Strangely Reads Moby Dick An Introduction why do we need yet another audiobook of Moby Dick, and why from Strangely? After all, Moby Dick is perhaps the most famous book ever, excepting The Dark Knight Returns, The Secret, Harry Potter, or The Bible, depending on what circles you move in. Even a cursory search of Audible reveals dozens of editions with various readers reading the book, a number of which were delivered as multi-part podcasts just like I intend to do. Egocentric though it may sound, I would direct your attention to the fact that none of these versions were performed by me, and herein lies my motivation. I do not presume to claim that I will do it better, or even that I have anything in particular to add to the great mountain of scholarship surrounding this book. What I can bring, though, is that peculiar flavor of savor known as strangely. In other words, if you like my voice, then oh boy howdy do I have dozens of hours more of it recorded for your specific amusement. I've had a number of fans of this podcast tell me that sometimes they listen to it just to feel like I'm hanging out with them and keeping them company, so goodness knows I might as well keep you company with a good book. While I generally prefer to experience literature alone, it seemed as though I was forever foiled whenever I tried to do so with Moby Dick. Every single person who heard about me reading it had thoughts, opinions, and questions. Moby Dick is one of those classic books that everyone intends to read at some point. Indeed, I doubt I would have ever accomplished it had I not made it a particular New Year's resolution and announced it on this very podcast. Looked at now in the sober light of morning after just finishing the recordion of my second journey through the book, it is obvious that by announcing it to the world what I was reading, I was inviting the world to converse with me about it. And oh, what conversations they were! The book is full of beautiful prose, startling imagery, and delightful incidents. The latter third of my first journey through it took place while staying in my friend's guest room in Los Angeles, a fortunate circumstance as I was forever compelled to dash into the kitchen, office, garage, or bedroom where my hosts were and read them a passage at all hours of the day and night. One of them was inspired to read the book after I was finished, commenting, I thought you were just cherry-picking the best bits, but it's wall-to-wall -wall delightful. Other listeners of this podcast have commented to me that they appreciate hearing my remarks about Moby Dick defying my expectations. They enjoyed the insight that it's not just a book about a dude who hates a whale. Indeed, I think the broader cultural osmosis version of what this book is about is a great disservice to the work. 
with a far greater portion of it given up to the kind of musings on the validity of different points of view mentioned previously. This is a book far more about seeking to understand the world and ourselves than it is about hating a big fish. By the way, I might as well, at this point, plant my flag, or waif pole, if you will, that's a reference for people who've read the book before, on a particular point. I do not believe the whale symbolizes God. Yes, the whale is big and angry at people for poking it. That does not make it God. Uh, perhaps a kind of wild deity of the natural world in the same sense as a mythical beast like a kraken or a dragon, sure, but not God. Honestly, having now read this thing twice, I find that bit of interpretation to be, at best, a stretch, and at worst, a very lazy reading of the text in question. Go ahead and at me, whale is God bros. I will gladly die on this particular volcano. It's a big fish, and Ahab hates it. I know I keep calling it a fish, but so does Melville, the reasoning for which is, like all things in this book, explained at length. And it is that very length that is another contributing factor in my desire to present the book whole and unabridged to you, my listeners. I know it's big. I know it's long. But if you're willing to commit to roughly 90 minutes every two weeks, then I will read it to you. And thus, slowly, bit by bit, we'll get through it. At that point, anyone who listens to this podcast will be able to claim, along with myself, that they have read Moby Dick. But it's an audiobook, you say. Pish! If audiobooks don't count as reading, then blind people listening to them aren't readers. Listen to yourself before you cast aspersions upon different methods of receiving text. Furthermore, even if you have read a book before, there will always be new things to discover in the way any given individual chooses to voice a certain character, or emphasize a given syllable. Once again, not that my interpretations are any better or more valid than anyone else's, I just think you might enjoy finding out which character I thought sounded like Hunter S. Thompson. This is as good a point as any to mention that I make no claim to pronounce everything in this book correctly. There are words in any number of languages, including some in alphabets I could not even begin to take a stab at. I did my very best. Please be kind. So too, the audio quality is the best I could produce, but as I recorded this in a small cabin by the sea, you may occasionally hear waves, seagulls, rain on the window, certain rescue helicopters, and other sundry noises of the natural world. It is my hope that you will just incorporate them into the reading as though we are hanging out together at the beach. I've also been thinking about this book a great deal in connection with another project I'm working on. I'm about to travel to Svalbard, an island north of Norway, to take part in an expedition to the high Arctic. The particular piece of art I will be crafting is hopefully going to be based on the experience and what it has to do with the effects that distance, isolation, and spending time in non-human environments have upon the people who experience them. I have always been drawn to narratives of changes wrought in people by extreme journeys, so it seems only natural that I would attempt to undergo one myself. To try to recapture some of what Melville would call, quote, that sense of the full awfulness of the sea which aboriginally belongs to it. I thought of that quote a few weeks ago when, during a run on an isolated beach, I accidentally disturbed the slumber of a very territorial male elephant seal. 
I was in a place that human beings did not belong, and yet something inside me wanted to engage with it. I picked up my copy of Moby Dick after that encounter with the seal and considered rereading it, eventually deciding to share that reread with all of you. Some of the other participants in my expedition have written that they are reading certain books about previous expeditions in order to give themselves some kind of expectation in regard to what will happen. As mentioned in my thoughts on forwards, I tend to resist such actions. I am hoping to keep myself open to whatever experience may occur, and yet it feels irresponsible not to prepare in some way for that which I will be undertaking. So to that end, I have prepared this audiobook for all of you in the hope that I have discovered what my favorite magician Ricky Jay would call something about something. I will also be frank with you. <laughs> There is a bit of a financial consideration. While I am very lucky to be able to participate in something so fantastical as an Arctic expedition, that does not preclude it from completely draining my resources. As such, I will be out of communication range for much of the next couple of months. And it is my understanding that polar bears do not pay accordionists particularly well. It is my hope that the dozen or so episodes of this podcast created by my production of this audiobook will serve somewhat to help keep yours truly afloat, as it were. I now find myself wondering if that particular turn of phrase will prove problematically prophetic in my present predicament. Please keep floating, Expedition Boat. Please. I hope the majority of you listeners, both new and old, will stick with my podcast during the next few months as I release this audiobook on a bi-weekly schedule. Along the way, should my travels and internet connections allow, I may additionally upload a few episodes of my original writing as well, but they will not interrupt the progress of the audiobook one whit. No, dear reader, you may set your watch upon it. I appreciate your support, both past and future. Part the Third On Wearing a Whale's Penis Like a Dress I hope that my above ruminations on the continued value of this book and the personal connection I feel to it have not put you off the endeavor I am proposing. Because everything above having been said, this book is very funny. For instance, I laughed aloud at this wonderful bit of language when Ahab tells someone to shut up. Be the front of thy face to me as the palm of this hand, a lipless, unfeatured blank. I also adore the darkly humorous mumblings of the ship's second mate, Stubb, a man who seems to find most of life queer, most queer. Elsewhere in the novel, you will find in delightful imagery like this description of Moby Dick's departure as he dives, quote, down into the sea, disappearing in a boiling maelstrom in which, for a space, the odorous cedar chips of the wrecks dance round and round like the grated nutmeg in a swiftly stirred bowl of punch. <laughs> I believe that it is this playful use of language that has made the book such an endearing classic. Melville is a kid in a candy store when it comes to using words to create a sense of place, of mood. Often, it is less about the specific words being used than their overall flavor, a kind of rhythmic cadence being established through allegory, illusion, and alliteration. While I have heard numerous laments like, Melville is so wordy, or the prose is so dense I couldn't quite follow it, I don't think these are quite fair. 
In fact, I think the inability to quite follow every twist of some passages is entirely the point. Sometimes it is just about texture, not individual words. To be sure, specifics abound, but not at the expense of delight. I would urge the listener to sink into cadence, particularly in the more didactic chapters. Hermy does love to expound upon the natural history of the Leviathan. And why not? Whales are big. They deserve a big book. I will close this introduction with a passage from the 104th chapter, which encapsulates not only Melville's opinions about the book in general, but also his playful use of language, his penchant for wordiness, and his joyous tone. One often hears of writers that rise and swell with their subject, though it may seem but an ordinary one. How then with me? Writing of this Leviathan, unconsciously my chirography expands into placard capitals. Give me a condor's quill. Give me Vesuvius's crater for an inkstand. Friends, hold my arms! For in the mere act of penning my thoughts of this Leviathan, they weary me and make me faint with their oat-reaching comprehensiveness of sweep, as if to include the whole circle of the sciences and all generations of whales and men and mastodons, past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas of empire on earth and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme, we expand to its bulk to produce a mighty book. You must choose a mighty theme. <laughs> I mean, if that's not your jam, I feel bad for you, son, but it certainly is mine, and I hope you'll come to love it before we're done. Uh... Thus concludes my introduction to my audiobook version of Moby Dick. I want to thank all of you once again for listening to this episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast, as well as all the prior and subsequent ones. If you are not yet a supporter of Strangely and Friends, the podcast, which is to say a supporter of mine, uh, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash strangely to find out how you can become a patron uh, for as little as a dollar an episode. You can help me continue to produce both original audio content and uh, possibly more audiobooks of pieces of classic literature. I had such a gas of a time recording Moby Dick. I, I really hope that I enrich your life somewhat by releasing it. The episodes will be coming out once every two weeks for the next couple of months. Um, I think I'll probably set up something like on the uh, first and third Mondays, we could, Moby Mondays. That, that, that seems good. I'm completely off the cuff now sort of imagining that. But I think, yeah, doing Moby Mondays on the, the first and third Mondays feels good. And then um, possibly on those alternating Mondays, there might be... Uh, more original episodes of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. But for the time being, I just want to make sure that something regular is going up in the feed while I am completely beyond the realm of mortal humanity, as it were. Uh, 
I could go on and on and on about how much I love this book, but I'm going to close this episode here. Uh, oh, one last thing. If you are the kind of person who doesn't want to just dip a toe in once every two weeks and you instead would like to get the whole audiobook right now, ASAP, uh, please feel free to drop me a line. My email address is strangely, S-T-R-A-N-G-E-L-Y, at tuta.io, T-U-T-A dot I-O. Uh, I am going to be selling a limited number of download codes for a secret Bandcamp version where you can buy just the whole book all at once, but I'm going to keep that um, private for now. And I, I do, I do want to stress, all of these will be coming out in the regular podcast feed for free. It'll just sort of happen over time um, so that, you know, it's not, it's not, I don't want it to feel like this huge commitment. You know, it's, it's over 20 hours long, this audiobook, and that's a big commitment. But, you know, I, I spend more than 90 minutes a week thinking about Oreos. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a lot. <laughs> now you all know what my favorite uh, mass produced garbage cookie is. Send Oreos. But yeah, shoot me an email strangely at T-U-T-A dot I-O. If you're interested in purchasing that audiobook. I think uh, it will be available for some amount of money. I haven't quite figured that out yet. I need to figure out how much time it will take me to upload it into Bandcamp and everything. But once again, friends, thank you so much. Uh, look for the first episode of the Moby Dick audiobook uh, next Monday in the regular podcast feed. Go ahead and gear yourselves up. And for my subscribers on Patreon, that first episode is going to show up uh, a little earlier That'll, that'll show up tomorrow, Tuesday, the 1st of March. Uh, that will show up. So, you know, just a, a fun little thing for my subscribers on Patreon. Anyway, uh, thanks so much. I could talk to you all day. I miss you all. I've been at this isolated cabin for almost two weeks, and it's exciting to think about going back to where I might see some friends. If you happen to be in Fresno, California, uh, over the next couple of weekends I'm going to be doing shows at the Rogue Festival I will also be doing a show in San Jose, California on March 12th uh, get in touch if you're interested in details on that I will be doing a little house gig in Los Angeles on March 17th and I will be performing at Clockwork Alchemy March 18 and 19 before I get on the big silver monster bird to go to Norway so uh, hopefully some of you might see me down in California. If not, I will see you on this podcast every two weeks for the foreseeable future as I read to you from Moby Dick. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. <laughs>